about the author of the book of Revelation, who that was. And uh, we have talked about uh, the date of the book, some of the primary dates. I still didn't change that. Vespasian is 69 to 79. Sorry about that. Uh, we talked about Revelation chapter 17, which is an indicator that one emperor out of the emperors that we've taken a look at is in power at the time of the writing. I would suggest to you it's Vespasian. Uh, but it's going to be writing about the time of the emperor Domitian and its fulfillment during that period of time. Uh, we've talked about the recipients of the book, uh, why there was such antagonism towards the first century Christians during this period of time, how that the uh, church in the first century was beginning to be recognized as an illegal religion. Their practices were suspect. They talked about having love feasts and things of this nature. And, uh, uh, and so they were looked upon as a pariah on the culture during that period of time. Uh, we've talked about the conditions of the empire. Uh, Rome was approaching her zenith, which would probably take place about 114 to 117 AD. She is pictured by uh, the book of Revelation in Revelation 17 as a harlot. Uh, she was held together, power and strength of the Roman Empire was her legions. The riches of Rome, we talked about the extravagance of Rome, uh, how that slave population had exploded. People were not being able to get to work or find work, and so people began to rush to Rome to get on the dole system, which was the welfare system at that time. So you were either rich, poor, or a slave. Roman moral conditions were just terrible. Uh, even those who preached morality, uh, uh, practiced immorality, they were the very opposite of what they preached uh, or taught their students. Uh, Roman religious conditions was one of fear, particularly when it came to the religion of worshiping the emperor, uh, which was one of fear. We talked about the emperor was considered divine, uh, it, uh, official bodies were set up in each town to enforce wor uh, emperor worship. The Perfectus Urbi was basically, as if you were, if you remember in World War II, does anybody know what the Nazis' strong power force was during that period of time? What were they were called? The, the SS. Well, Rome had its own SS corps, and it was called the Perfectus Urbi. They were the ones that arrested, tortured, confiscated and even, even used the power of beheading and exile to take care of those who refused to call the emperor Lord God. Then we talked about the concilia. In each, uh, in each establishment, as far as the city of Rome was concerned, they had the concilia. The concilia were the ones that propagated, promoted emperor worship. Uh, the perfectus urbi enforced it. Punishment for not doing so was beheading, exile, and property confiscation. Now, we've been talking about the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book, obviously, from what the Christians were going to be experiencing or were experiencing uh, uh, when they received the letter was the fact that they were going to need to receive some comfort, some encouragement for the days, months, and some years ahead about what they were going to be facing under the emperor Domitian and his persecution. And so they, that's the reason why they received this letter from, from John 
why God, through his son Jesus, reveals it to his apostle and to his servant John. Uh, it, it will reveal the ultimate triumph of the church. When all is said and done, when the smoke is cleared, the church is going to be still strong, the church is going to be still standing, but the emperor who is bringing that horrible persecution on Christians, who is known as the beast, is going to be taken out of the way. And so uh, uh, that's what it reveals, is the ultimate... Uh, it also sought to give incentives for Christians to remain faithful unto death. Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 10. Uh, it also, by the way, encouraged Christians to let them know that they need to check their own spiritual hold card. Because when this judgment was going to be brought in time upon Rome, upon the beast, guess who was also going to be included in the judgment? Christians. First Peter chapter 4 says that judgment first begins with who? The household of God. The household of God. God, when he does an end time judgment or when he, when he comes in final judgment, always begins with the household of God first. He'll deal with his own children first. Then he will deal with the rest, as it were. And so in the midst of this judgment that's going to come, God is going to judge the beast. God is going to judge Rome in time. But Christians are also going to be caught up in the judgment as well, and they need to make sure that their walk with the Lord is intact, that they have not left their first love. As he writes to the book, or as he writes to the church in Ephesus, that's one of the things, the accusations that he makes against the church at Ephesus is you've left your first love. You've left your first love. And so he's seeking to write to the churches of Asia, the seven churches of Asia Minor, to let them know they need to get their house in order before this end time judgment takes place. To be faithful unto death. So it was to give incentives for Christians to remain faithful unto death, but also to get their own spiritual act together, as it were. Now, we've been talking about methods of interpretation. That's where we left off. Methods of interpretation. The first method of interpretation is probably one of the most popular in Christendom. That is the futurist method. The futurist method. Things that are written in the book of Revelation are yet to come. They have not yet occurred. From chapters 1 to chapter 3, that is something that was done back in contemporary first century. But chapters 4 through chapter 19 is something that many futurists who approach this book with the futurist idea believe is still yet in our future, or at least in the future. In chapters 14 to 19 in the book of Revelation, it deals with the 70th week in the vision that Daniel receives in Daniel chapter 7. That's what they believe, that it deals with the final week in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 7, the 70th week. Chapters 20 through 22 are the end time, or after, after the tribulation times, it's the final judgment or and the final time. That's the way the futurists look at breaking up the book of Revelation. 
The second one we looked at, and we've already looked at this one, but the second one we looked at was the continuous historical method. That's one way in which people approach the book of Revelation or look at the book of Revelation. They see it as, uh, as uh, the, the book of Revelation being, being fulfilled and ending up with the climax of the establishment of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is how continuous the continuous uh, uh, historical method is concerned. In other words, the seven seals that we're going to see in the book of Revelation refers to the various emperors and their time frame, all right? Uh, culminating ultimately in the establishment of the Pope. The seven trumpets deal with the various invasions of the, of the tribes who were trying to destroy Rome. Rome will meet its end. Does anybody know when Rome finally falls? 476 AD is when, there you go. 476 AD is when Rome finally meets its end. It is. Absolutely. Yes. The, the, uh, the concept is, is that before Jesus can come, there has to be, Israel has to receive all the land back. The temple needs to be reestablished. The, the temple worship, the sacrifices and things will be done. The priesthood reestablished before Jesus comes. And so when any type of moves are made like this in our time frame, people are thinking, well, that's, that's revelation. It's going to be, see, it's coming close. It's going to be fulfilled. That's based upon, some of that is based upon Revelation chapter 11, where we see the temple uh, still standing, or standing as it were, and the two witnesses that go out and prophesy and preach, uh, and how the holy city is going to be uh, under pressure and under stress and go through a period of tribulation for about three and a half years, or 1260 days. Now you say, well, what does all that mean? Well, when we get there about this time next year, we'll let you know. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. All right? So that's the continuous historical method. You can, you can delve into this a little bit deeper, obviously, than I'm giving it to you. Then there is the philosophy of history method. Some people approach the book of Revelation as nothing more than a philosophy of history. It's highly symbolic. Uh, everything is basically general. You can possibly draw some principles from that. And when you, when you approach the book of Revelation that way, it removes, number one, it removes the significance of what those Christians were going through in the first century as, and minimalizes it as to basically nothing. 
and it removes it a lot of times from even uh, dealing with what they were going to be dealing with. So that's an approach, but I, I don't think it's, it's a practical approach, nor is it a good for interpretation either. Then there's the preterist method, the preterist method. Now, the preterist method is you approach the book of Revelation as having been fulfilled. But in the preterist camp, there are basically two wings, two groups. You've got your liberal group or your left-wing group, and you've got your right-wing right or conservative group in the camp of the preterist method. The right-wing says that the book of Revelation has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled during the time of Domitian. Uh, but right now, in our present time, it's really uh, only significant for literary use. That is basically all. That's all there is to it, the book of Revelation now. It has no practical purpose as it were today. The left wing says that the book of Revelation is not inspired at all. It wasn't inspired in the first place and only has literary value. The literary value is it's a book of apocalypse or it's a symbolic figure book which some of the books of the Bible have a lot of apocalyptic uh, tones or literature in it, like the book of Ezekiel, like the book of Jeremiah, like the book of Isaiah. So this is the preterist method, all right? The next one is the historical background method. And I suggest to you this is a very practical way to interpret the book Revelation the historical background method. That yes, the book of Revelation has been fulfilled, but it still has practical application to our day and time. It still has underlying principles that you and I, and truths that you and I can receive encouragement and help from to even live life in our day and time. It says also that the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. It's a highly symbolic, highly figurative book. There are approximately 404 passages that make up the book of Revelation. You may not know this, but about 278 of those passages in the book of Revelation have their connections to the Old Testament have the connection to the Old Testament. So if you want to understand a lot of the symbols and figures that are used in the book of Revelation, where do you think we're going to have to go to sometimes to figure out what those images mean? Old Testament. Old Testament. Have you ever noticed how certain books of the Bible uh, attract the, the various aspects of a human life. Like the book of Romans. The Romans, the book of Romans uh, attracts the intellect. All right? It attracts the intellect. The book of Psalms. What would you say the book of Psalms, as far as man's makeup is concerned, that what does it appeal to? Book of Psalms. Peace, comfort, emotions. Emotions. The book, the book of Psalms is a, is a highly emotional book. It, 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 it attaches to our emotions. Uh, how about the, like the, the 
five books of law or the commandments, what do, what do they appeal to? The commandments. Will. Man's will. Okay? So various book, books in the Bible have an appeal, appeal to us from our various aspects of our own personal makeup, whether it's the intellect, whether it's the emotion, or whether it's the will. What about the book of Revelation? What does it appeal to? Imagination. Imagination. What we're going to be called on to do is when we read the book of Revelation, we see the vision that John receives, we're going to have to ask ourselves a question. When John sees a picture, we're going to have to say to ourselves, well, I see the picture, but what does it mean? Now, when you, when you look at a painting, when you look at a picture, do, do you go up to the picture as close as you possibly can so you can see each little brush stroke or to be able to see what the picture is and what the picture means, do you stand back just a little bit so you can see the whole thing? That's what we need to do when we see these visions or this revelation that John receives. We're going to need to stand back and see this vision and say, well, I see the picture, but what does it mean? What does the picture mean? And again, one of the things that we're going to have to do to get an answer if we do not get an answer within the text itself as to what the picture means. In other words, prophecy is not for, one, for a man's own interpretation. All right? Prophecy is not for a man's interpretation. Our responsibility is to interpretate the prophecy or the figure or the symbol as God expresses it or gives us a definition for it. Now, sometimes, like in the book of Revelation, we'll see Jesus talking about walking among seven golden lampstands, having seven stars, and we find out that, that seven refers to, he tells us, seven churches. Oh, okay, now I know what the image is. I've seen the picture of Jesus walking among the seven golden lampstands, holding the seven stars in his hands. Now I know what it means. He's walking among what? The seven churches, okay? I know what it means. How do I know what it means? Because he told me what it meant. When we go to Revelation chapter 17, we see this great beast. It's got ten heads, seven horns, whatever the case may be. He tells us the ten-headed beast are what? Ten kings. Or I don't have to guess then, do I? I've seen the picture. Now I know what that picture means. Those ten heads refer to ten kings. But when I don't have that expressed to me and revealed to me as to what the meaning is, guess what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to go back into the Old Testament a lot of times to find out what that meaning was back then to help me to understand why that vision was given. What was revealed in that picture? What did it mean? All right? That's called the prophetic principle. That's called the prophetic principle when it comes to the book of Revelation or any, or any prophecy, all right? The prophetic principle says this. When the meaning in the book is made known, that meaning will be adopted. Just as I mentioned, 
when the Bible tells me that the seven can golden lampstands refer to the seven churches, that's the meaning I'm going to accept because that's what God told me it meant. But when the meaning of the vision is not made known, then we will make an appeal to a similar vision from Scripture to interpret that vision. That's the prophetic principle. That means I'm not going to put, I'm not going to eisegete and push, put my idea on it. I'm going to go be looking to God to find out what that, what that picture really means, what that vision means, what that symbol refers to. All right? One of the things that you're going to find out, not only in our culture, but back in that culture, is that the symbolism of numbers was something that was highly used. Symbolism of numbers. If I were to put up on the screen the number 1776, 1776, does that say anything to you and I as American citizens? Declaration of Independence was signed. Right. If I were to put up for those of you who remember the little, the little uh, 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 song that we sung, if I were to put up the number 1492, what would you say as a rhyme? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah, I still remember that. Man, that's back in grade school. I'm pretty sharp. Anyway. If I were to mention the, the numbers 911, does that have any significance to us in our culture today? It tells them to hurry. What else does it refer to now? September 11th. The, the, the tragic events that took place on September the 11th, 2001, 911. That number not only, not only is the emergency code, but it's also something that allows us to remember and reflect on those buildings, the Twin Towers going down, those planes crashing into those Twin Towers, and, and all the events surrounding that. If I were to give you the, the number 60, 60 have any significance to you? Huh? Old? <laughs> 65? I, I should have put, put it under 65. That has a significant tone to it. Uh, but 60, 60 have any significance to us? 60 seconds in a minute, 60, 60, sec 60 minutes in an hour, okay? How about the, uh, the number uh, 12? Does it have any significance in our culture? Jury. Jury, okay, 12 on a jury, 12 months in a year. Anybody else, anybody else? Ladies, you cooks, come on. New <laughs> lunch. <laughs> that's it. Lunch. Twelve noon. That's it. All right. A dozen. What's a baker's dozen? Thirteen. All right. What's the sinister number in our culture? Thirteen. Thirteen. Unless you've read Revelation and you've seen that number six, six, six. You ever write in a checkbook and you come down to the balance in your account and it says six, six, six? Does that ever bother you? You ever look at your driver's license and you see the number six, six? Does that bother you? <laughs> 13 is a sinister number, isn't it? 
That's an unlucky, sinister number. Do you know there was at a time, and there still may be buildings, that refused to put a 13th floor in? They would jump from 12 to 14. What, that, what did that actually make floor 14? Actually, it made it 13, yeah. Anyway, so if you're superstitious, 13, yes. There you go. There you go. 13 has just had a, a, you know, yeah, a sinister connotation to it. Now, in our, in our culture, numbers have meaning. Uh, they are a part of our culture. They have meaning as far as time, as far as speed, as far as events are concerned. Well, folks, back in Bible times and before, numbers held an important symbolic meaning to them. In some cultures where a lot of words, uh, particularly the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language did not have any vowels in it. They were all consonants. So their ability to have a, lot, a, a great vocabulary, unlike the Greeks, they would use numbers to, to, uh, to present an idea, a thought, an event, and things of this nature. So to the Jews and to the Eastern mind, numbers held a great deal of significance. Some of the numbers that we're going to cover today are in the book of Revelation. It's interesting to note that the number one is not used in the book of Revelation, but it referred to deity. It referred to the divine in some biblical numerology cases, all right? Number one. The number of two, what do you think the number two would be uh, a symbol of? The number two. When Jesus sent out his disciples, how did he send them? Two by two. I wonder why he did that. Strength. Strength. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 talks about a twofold, or a when two walk together and one stumbles, they can find strength together. So two, the number two, is referring to strength. When you think about it in the book of Revelation, we're going to see two witnesses who are out testifying. We're going to see two beasts who are out to destroy the church. And what they depict because of their number is strength. Strength. How about the number three? What do you think any significance in Eastern thought, the number three? Well, what is, what is the Godhead? Triune, is it? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
three personalities that make up the Godhead. God is one, yet he has three personalities. What is man? Is man dual or triune as far as his nature is concerned? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says that man is made up as a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. The body houses the soul, the soul houses the spirit. That's the reason why, just off of base, just a little off subject here, but I don't charge extra for this. That's the reason why when you see uh, uh, somebody in heaven, it talks about the soul being in heaven or the spirit being in heaven. So which is it? Is the soul in heaven or the spirit in heaven? You know what the answer is? Yes. The soul houses the spirit. So when a soul goes to heaven, what's it taken with it? That person's spirit. And man cannot be complete unless he's body, soul, and spirit. So when a person dies, their soul's spirit goes back to God, but what about their body? It stays in the ground and goes back to dust of the earth. And it's interesting to note, when Jesus comes back, the final time, final judgment, what's he coming back to do? Well, he's coming back to bring judgment, obviously. But there's going to be a resurrection, is there not? A resurrection of what? Bodies. And the Bible says that Jesus is coming back with the spirit souls of those who have passed away physically, but that body's going to be raised, changed in the twinkling of an eye, and be, re be reunited with that soul spirit so that man can be complete. Body, soul, and spirit. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what kind of body is it going to be? I don't have a clue. I know it's going to be a body just like Jesus, because that's what it says in 1 John 3. We're going to have a body, and we're going to see him just as he is. Not as he was, but as he is. So whatever kind of body Jesus is going to have, that's the kind of body I'm going to have. That's the kind of body I'm going to have. And I'll leave it at that. All right? So, symbols, symbols of numbers. Uh, the, because of the poverty of words, caused them to use numbers to express an idea, thought, or situation. The number one, which is not used in Revelation, meant unity, unique, or alone. Obviously, number two, the number two meant strength. Ecclesiastes 4, Luke 10. Revelation chapter 11 and chapter 13. Revelation 11 deals with the two witnesses. Revelation 13 deals with the two beasts. Number three deals with deity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Godhead. Which, which also is a concept that's held in Buddhism, Hinduism, Mohammedism as well. That's the second bell. All right, we'll finish this up because as soon as we get this done, guess where we're going? We're going into the text, finally.
Fine. We're going to 